New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we're going to explore scientific tests of the orchestrated objective reduction theory of consciousness. My guest is Dr. Stuart Hameroff, a professor of anesthesiology and psychology at the Banner University Medical Center of the University of Arizona in Tucson. He is also co-founder and director of the Center for Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona, and he is author of Ultimate Computing, Biomolecular Consciousness and Nanotechnology. Since 1994, he has organized the Toward a Science of Consciousness conferences at the University of Arizona and elsewhere, and working with Sir Roger Penrose, he is the co-author of The Orc Or Theory of Consciousness. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Stuart. It's a pleasure once again to be with you. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. Good to see you. We've done a number of interviews over the years on the Orc Or Theory of Consciousness. You've been working on it now, I think, for three decades approximately. And uh, I'm under the impression that at this very moment, you are running a, an experiment which could really be a definitive test of the theory. Is, is this the first definitive test? It would be the most definitive test. We've had some supportive uh, results, but this is the first experiment actually aimed at uh, falsifying uh, our theory. Basically, uh, we're doing the, the type of experiment that was done to show quantum coherence superposition in photosynthesis proteins uh, back in uh, 2006, I think it, it started, where they, uh, they take a protein, in the, uh, uh, the FMO protein in photosynthesis, which uh, it turns out in photosynthesis, uh, the photons are collected by one part of a complex and transported to another part where they're converted into chemical energy and food, which animals eat, we eat, and so forth. And the transport of the energy is through what are, what are called uh, uh, electronic excitation or excitons. And these propagate through seven different pathways through this little protein, through these chromophores, simultaneously in superposition, a very efficient transfer of energy so that um, minim there's minimal loss and we get the most, uh, the plants get the most uh, chemical food basically for the amount of, of sunlight. And it's quite likely that without this efficient quantum effect that uh, life wouldn't exist really. So we want to try that with tubulin, which is the protein of microtubules. And what you do is, uh, uh, I don't do it. It's going to be done in, in at Princeton in the lab of Greg Scholes, who was a very prominent uh, biophysicist and did some of the uh, early work uh, on photosynthesis. In fact, he, he was one of the pioneers. And uh, tubulin is significantly bigger than, uh, well, it's about four times bigger than the FMO protein. Um, and what you do is, or what he, he will do is uh, zap it with a laser, actually, uh, I think three different lasers, and you get two signals out. And uh, if there's a quantum superposition within the protein, superposition meaning that things are in two or more places or states at the same time, 
you get a signal that looks like a saw, sawtooth wave. It's called beat frequencies. Just like in music where you have resonant uh, frequencies that are slightly off, you get beats. And you see these beat frequencies, and that's an indication that there's quantum superposition in the protein. And if we get that, we will then try anesthesia and see if the superposition goes away uh, with anesthesia and comes back when the anesthesia is gone. We'll try it for several different anesthetics, and we know the potency of each anesthetic. And if uh, one anesthetic is, say, twice as potent as putting URI or an animal to sleep, then it should be twice as potent uh, as another anesthetic in in, in dampening uh, the uh, the quantum os the superposition oscillations, quantum vibrations. So that's basically the idea. Well, now as I understand it, the uh, very interesting thing about these anesthesias is that uh, they dampen consciousness, sometimes reduce consciousness down to zero. Uh, at the same time, other brain functions are operating normally. That's exactly right. In fact, uh, sensory evoked potentials. So if you like uh, stimulate your finger or your toe uh, with a pinch or an electrical, little electrical jolt, the signal travels through your spinal cord to the brain. And during spine surgery, where the surgeon's working on the spine, we want to make sure that the, spine, the spinal cord is intact, uh, they're not cutting off the blood supply or putting pressure on. So we monitor these, monitor these sensory evoked potentials during uh, the case and during the anesthetic. So uh, the, the patient is unconscious, is being operated on, but uh, his, or her, his or her brain and spinal cord and nervous system are functioning in terms of transmitting and receiving these these signals in the brain we can also do or not we the electrophysiologists can also do motor evoked potentials where they stimulate here and see uh, a twitch in a finger or a toe so we're showing that the spinal cord uh, is intact but it also demonstrates that the brain is quite active processing signals all that's missing is consciousness and that is a very interesting and uh, and perplexing fact about anesthesia and I think a big clue to figuring out consciousness. It suggests that the uh, normal operations, the sensory motor operations of the brain take place uh, the way it's been conventionally thought of through neural spikes, but consciousness itself is operating at a deeper, at a quantum level. Exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Um, in fact, I think that cognition, you know, I've been thinking about this recently and I've kind of changed my thinking. Cognition, which is what we do, you know, in, in just operating in the world, you know, walking, talking, uh, uh, driving a car, walking, uh, can be either conscious or non-conscious. You're walking, you can be paying attention to where you place your, your foot if you're hiking, or you can just be walking along daydreaming, think about something else. Even driving, you can be mind-wandering. And while you're paying attention, you're not really conscious of, of the surroundings until something changed. Somebody swerves in front of you, and all of a sudden your consciousness uh, is, is back on the road. So uh, that cognition is kind of autopilot. And I think there's an autopilot system uh, in the brain and even within cells. Single cells can be, do very clever things, operating uh, 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 various uh, functions like uh, moving, sensing, uh, bouncing off objects, finding a mate, having having sex, actually two paramecium fuse and, and, and have sex and uh, they can learn. And I don't know if they're conscious or not, but they have this cognition. 
And I think that consciousness kind of supervenes on cognition, like when you're driving and all of a sudden you have to become mm -hmm. conscious. Uh, the cognition autopilot was was uh, operating and then your consciousness takes over. So I think that that's a general feature where consciousness supervenes and kind of hijacks normal cognition to do conscious processing. This test that you're running now could actually falsify the theory if the anesthesias don't work according to prediction. Right. We're in a, a program uh, put on by Templeton, Templeton World Charity Foundation, called Accelerating Research and Consciousness. And they wanted, their first idea was to pit two theories against each other and come up with a common experiment that could falsify one or the other. And we tried to do that with integrated information theory with Christoph Koch and, and Giulio Tononi, but we couldn't come to an agreement. And uh, to make a long story short, Templeton said, well, let's just, uh, let's just have you do the experiments that would falsify ORCOR. Because I, quite frankly, I don't think you could falsify IIT. I, I don't really see how it's falsifiable. And therefore, I'm not sure it's a real theory. But we'll put that aside. Uh, we'll just stick to our theory, which I think is falsifiable. In fact, uh, I wrote a paper recently uh, called uh, Orcoar is the most complete and the most easily falsifiable theory of consciousness. And it's based on this experiment because we say in the, in the proposal and it's also pre-registered, so the results will be online and anybody can follow them. So we can't bury the, the results. If they come out bad, uh, everybody will be able to see them. And we basically say that if we cannot demonstrate quantum superposition in tubulin, or if we demonstrate it, but it doesn't go away with anesthesia, then we're falsified. So uh, we're, we're basically going out on a limb and uh, seeing what happens. And... Uh, you know, it's exciting. It's also a little bit worrisome. But, uh, you know, that's science. That's life. Well, it would be interesting here. You've spent three decades working on this theory. And I guess sometime this year, we're going to know whether it's confirmed or falsified by this research. Right. Although I have to say that even if it works perfectly, even if um, uh, there's superposition and the anesthetics uh, abolish or dampen the, the, uh, the, the interference uh, proportional to their potency, that would prove the biological end. Now, the other aspect of it is, is the hard problem of why that gives rise to experience, and that gets into Roger Penrose's idea of uh, objective reduction. That's kind of a separate issue, uh, and uh, that can be, that's being addressed in different ways, but... but um, we're just going for the biological aspect of it. And I think uh, most people would bet against us just for that. And I don't know, I, I, I'd i say we have maybe a third to 50% 50, 50 chance of, of showing it. I'm hoping it's higher, but we'll see. The issue of consciousness itself, I, I recall uh, back in the 1930s, Max Planck wrote that you can't get underneath consciousness. So to to test consciousness itself in a pure way, we're really talking more metaphysics than science, uh, it would seem to me. Yeah, it'd be nice to bring the metaphysics into physics and consciousness into science. That's kind of what we're trying to do. But uh, if Roger's mechanism is correct, and, I, and actually it's the only actual mechanism ever proposed for consciousness that, I, that I'm aware of, other, other theories are just kind of emergent hand-waving arguments, more or less. Roger has a specific mechanism, objective reduction, OR, which we, we then 
combined with the microtubule gives orchestrated objective reduction, ORCOR. Um, so uh, that would bring consciousness into science and metaphysics into physics, and this, that's what we hope for. But it'll be, it'll be, that's another uh, problem to, to show that. So in my lifetime, at least, I'll be, I'll be happy uh, if these experiments work and uh, we'll go from there. Now, you and I have had many previous interviews going into the details of the theory. Uh, we've talked, for example, about the orchestra of the brain, and I recently re-released that video in which you mentioned that the, the brain functions at many different frequency levels and harmonics. And uh, this is, it's not enough just to have the objective reduction. The orchestration part of it is really crucial for consciousness, I would think. Yes. Uh, most people would say the brain is a computer of neurons with each neuron firing being a, a bit like a one or zero on off. And uh, I don't think that I don't think that's correct. Uh, that may be more or less correct for the unconscious or non-conscious cognition autopilot stuff. But uh, for consciousness, that doesn't work. And it's true that uh, that there are these different harmonics and resonances most people look at them in EEG from uh, from the neuron up, where you're roughly in the, in in hertz to hundreds of hertz, and see they see multi-scale hierarchical relations there. But if you go inside the neuron, you get another nine, depending on how you count, nine or twelve orders of magnitude, going down from kilohertz, uh, megahertz, gigahertz, and terahertz. Uh, which is in the op uh, optical range already. So you get the, this. Uh, the, so the EEG is kind of the tip of an iceberg, tip of the iceberg of a uh, vibrational system with a lot of interference patterns and beats that give rise to EEG. But if you're just looking at the EEG, I think you're missing most of it. And the research that you're doing, looking at superpositions and the effects of anesthesia, you're really looking at some of these higher frequencies, I understand. Yes, we, we did a uh, computer modeling study in 2017. Travis Craddock, Philip Kurian, uh, uh, Jack Tusinski uh, on a supercomputer and, uh, and modeled just one tubulin. And uh, there are tubulin has uh, aromatic amino acids with these pi resonance rings. So if you go back to organic chemistry, you get, the, uh, remember, the, the basic uh, six-carbon ring with three extra electrons. It, by itself, it's benzene, which goes in our gas tanks. But when you isolate them or put them in an array, they have completely different properties. And uh, they tend to attract and then oscillate in, in a quantum, uh, quantum vibrations in terahertz, which is 10 to the 12th, 10 to the 15th hertz, uh, and, which is visible. Uh, uh, and if you put... If you put all 86 of these in a supercomputer and model the interactions among all 86, you get a spectrum in the terahertz with one particular peak at uh, 613 terahertz, which is in the blue-green uh, region of the spectrum. And we then modeled placement of an anesthetic molecule in the system, and we found that the anesthetic specifically abolished this 613 terahertz peak and slowed everything else down. And we got a, a correlation with potency too. And there were also uh, molecules we put in there which bind in the same place and are like anesthetics but don't cause loss of consciousness, and they, they didn't have this effect. So this experiment, uh, this is basically what we'd like to do in actual biology. We want to replicate what we did in the computer 
in biology. And that's the first step is what I mentioned before about looking for these superpositions and interference beats and see if they go, go away with anesthesia. But getting back to your original point, I do think that the brain is more like an orchestra than a computer or a, or a quantum orchestra. And that consciousness, in some sense, is more like music than a computation. Well, as I recall, Roger Penrose himself makes a point of saying that consciousness uh, is something uh, beyond computation. That consciousness can do things that computers simply cannot compute. That's right. And one example is understanding. And he got this from uh, mathematics and Gödel's theorem, where um, to, to prove a theorem, a mathematical theorem, you have to be outside the system. The theorem itself cannot prove itself. Some other system outside of it must determine if it's true or not. And he kind of uh, extrapolated that to understanding and said, for understanding, we have to kind of have a, something non-computable, something outside the system. And we actually see that in neurons, I think. And this is, this is something else that uh, we're looking into in, in another set of experiments that we were planning with uh, Allison Watry at, at UCSD with his uh, cerebral organoids, these, these mini brains. And, but basically it was shown in, uh, also in 2006 by Nondorf et al. In, in Europe where they put electrodes in pyramidal cells of awake cats. And uh, the idea that the brain is a computer is based on the Hodgkin-Huxley neuron model of integrated fire, where the, uh, where the dendrites and the soma receive inputs, synaptic inputs, integrate them to a threshold at the, what used to be called the axon hillock, but it is now called the axon initiation segment at the kind of proximal axon. And when the threshold is reached, triggers a spike, a firing. And those firings are what computationalists consider to be bits in the brain. But it turns out in neurons, pyramidal neurons of awake cats, that there's uh, that this threshold changes from from spike to spike, from instant to instant. Something else is is governing the firing, and so something else, something is deviating from Hodgkin-Huxley computation, and. Uh, we think this is the non-computable effect that Roger's talking about. It comes into play in triggering or not triggering the spikes in the microtubules inside the dendrites and soma of particularly pyramidal neurons. And we're going to look for that in, in uh, Alison Watry's uh, organoids and, and see if we can determine it and then see if we uh, anesthetize it. Then the variability should go away, but the neurons should still be able to fire. I gather that it's still controversial as to whether uh, consciousness requires quantum effects or not. Oh, it's way controversial. Yeah, we're uh, but but you know we're getting a lot more a lot more support now uh, because uh, quantum biology is is coming around. It's it's being accepted. It, it, the the whole idea you know when we first proposed this, people said, "Well, you're crazy because if you want to build a quantum computer in the laboratory." Uh, you have to have it at absolute zero uh, temperature to avoid thermal decoherence because any heat jostling of it would destroy the, the quantum state. But then uh, also in 2006, uh, as I mentioned before, they found uh, a quantum effects of photosynthesis in sunlight in warm temperature. And uh, I think that the key is that the, the, uh, the uh, moieties within the, within the uh, photosynthesis protein are called chromoforms, They're basically chlorophyll, and they have these pi resonance groups like, like the benzene. So they have these extra electrons, and these electrons 
electron clouds oscillate back and forth. They don't necessarily propagate electrons. They can propagate electron excitations, but they, they oscillate back and, uh, back and forth, and that gives rise to the efficiency in photosynthesis and can give rise to superpositions for consciousness, according to Roger's idea and, and my idea. One of the most interesting arguments for quantum effects related to consciousness, I picked up in an email exchange you had with my friend Nick Herbert. And as I recall, it had to do with uh, one of the inert gases, I think it was xenon, that functions as an anesthetic, even though it's inert chemically. Correct. Xenon is a perfectly good anesthetic. It's a little bit expensive, so we don't use it too much. But uh, it, it acts as an anesthetic, and it's one atom, and uh, it, it has no charges. It's a completely inert uh, molecule or atom, and, uh, but it's got the outer shell is, uh, is these electron clouds. So when it gets close to something else with an electron cloud, it couples two of them uh, by van der Waals forces and then oscillates in the terahertz range. And um, uh, the, the xenon, what we think happens, is, and, and all the other anesthetics are basically the same. They may not be completely inert, but they have one part of them that has this electron outer shell that, that uh, binds by van der Waals forces and couples and then oscillates. But the anesthetic kind of uh, uh, messes things, gums up the works and causes the dipoles to disperse. So it, it disrupts the normal uh, quantum coherence uh, that gives rise to consciousness. You take the xenon away or the anesthetic away by, by mass action. You just turn off the vaporizer and they get sucked out of the brain, into the blood, and out the lungs, and the patient wakes up. So uh, xenon is a good example, but it's the same as, as, as all the other gas anesthetics. In other words, uh, from your perspective as an anesthesiologist, there's very little question that uh, consciousness uh, is mediated through quantum mechanical properties. Uh, not everybody ascribes it to that, but there's no question that the anesthetics bind uh, or dissolve by these quantum uh, van der Waals forces. They don't form chemical bonds. Uh, they don't form ionic uh, covalent or any kind of uh, chemical bonds. They just form these very weak quantum interactions, and, uh, and that's enough to uh, affect only consciousness. It doesn't affect anything else. And, uh, you know, the anesthetics are, are soluble in, in, uh, in fat, in membranes, uh, and anywhere where we have these uh, nonpolar regions uh, due to the, the pi resonance. But they're all over the body. They're, they're, I often tell my residents when I'm teaching that, uh, you know, there's more anesthetics in the patient's rear end, but the anesthetics are obviously acting in the brain. And similarly, in the brain, there's a lot of anesthetics in the lipid membranes and other receptors, but they're acting somewhere else. And where that somewhere else is turns out to be most likely microtubules based on work from, from the University of Pennsylvania and Eckenhoff's lab. So uh, the microtubules must be having these quantum vibrations that are dampened by, uh, by the anesthetics, and nothing else is affected. Everything else goes on, the sensory potentials that we talked about, uh, and slower EEG, everything keeps on going except consciousness is gone. Uh, Stuart, I remember several years ago in one of our interviews, you were very hopeful that your theory would lead to treatments for things like Alzheimer's uh, using, uh, as I recall, acoustical resonances uh, in the brain. How is that going? Ultrasound, actually, which is used uh, commonly for imaging. And ultrasound are mechanical vibrations 
uh, in the uh, megahertz range. Uh, anything ab above uh, audio, uh, audible hearing, which is about 20,000 hertz, up to uh, millions of hertz, and uh, usually around megahertz, which is about a million hertz. So a million oscillations per second mechanical. And when that's uh, put into the body um, with a gel that makes a good contact, because it, it doesn't go through air, but if you have a good contact, it penetrates through the body readily, harmlessly, painlessly, reflects off any surface so you get an image. So you can see uh, the uh, fetus in, in the uterus. You can see organs. You can things uh, look at the heart and see, see the heart, how the heart's beating and so forth. Tremendously useful in medicine for imaging. Um, and, but it's also been used for, for decades, actually, the early part of the 20th century, as a therapy. Now, you've got to be careful here because it, at high intensities, it causes heating. And in fact, at very high intensities, it's used, it's focused to cause lesions. You can, you can zap a lesion like in the brain if it's a tumor or something and burn it and it goes away. But that's at high intensity. At kind of a mid-level range, you open the blood-brain barrier and it's some, some people use that to get drugs in. But at low intensity, like in the imaging range, uh, it seems to have a, a therapeutic effect, um, uh, healing of nerves peripherally and uh, in the brain. Uh, enhanced mood. So we actually did the first study in 2013 um, at the University of Arizona showing that uh, in a double-blind controlled study in chronic pain patients that uh, uh, brain ultrasound, transcranial ultrasound we call it, uh, <coughs> excuse me, goes into the brain and, uh, and, and uh, you can get an image, but it also causes effects on mood. And uh, we did a, a double-blind study and, and mood scales and Patients felt better and their their pain reduced, although not significantly. But there's a significant effect on mood. Most more recently, uh, my colleague Jay Sanguinetti and John Allen and others, uh, and me included, uh, published a paper early in 2020 um, showing a, a similar thing, but in a much more refined way. Were uh, uh, pointing at the uh, focus at the uh, uh, prefrontal cortex um, caused uh, mood enhancement, and then we did MRI and showed that there was changes in the connectivity throughout throughout the brain caused by by just uh, uh, ultrasound to the, the frontal cortex. So uh, and and uh, Jay Sanguinetti and Shinzen Young, uh, who's a, a well-known meditator, actually, have figured out where they can uh, uh, where they can focus the ultrasound to induce uh, something like a meditative state. And it has something to do with the default mode network and uh, getting out of uh, OCD behavior and that sort of thing. So I think it has tremendous opportunity, uh, tr tremendous potential for mental and, and cognitive disorders. And I still want to go, go back and try it for Alzheimer's because in Alzheimer's, uh, the amyloid plaques get all the attention. But what really causes the problems are the microtubules falling apart, quite literally. And uh, it looks like the ultrasound may cause microtubules to repolymerize because we know the microtubules have resonant effects in, in, in megahertz, which, which is why this makes sense. They're vibrating in megahertz, you give them a little megahertz vibrations and you promote the vibrations and they become more active and more functional. Fascinating work. Are, are there other heuristic projects that are uh, emerging from the Orcor theory that our viewers would be interested in knowing about? Well, we're going to, uh, as I said, uh, try to find consciousness in cerebral organoids uh, in Allison Mowatri's lab. We put in a proposal for that. We haven't uh, heard yet on the funding. But um, 
these organoids are uh, basically derived from stem cells, and Allison is one of the uh, premier labs in the world doing this, Allison Moatri's lab. And um, you start with stem cells, and you give them the right uh, neurotrophic factors, and, and they form neurons, and then you put a bunch of them together, and they assemble uh, in, into a cortex and actually form uh, what, what they call a cerebral organoid because they're made of cerebral cortical cells or mini brains. So there are about two and a half million neurons uh, uh, in, in an assembly, the cooperative assembly. They form synapses and they have neurotransmitters and everything. Um, and what Allison discovered, and I, I'm pretty sure he was the first, uh, his lab was the first to discover it, was EEG coming out of these little organoids. And not just EEG, but what's called phase-coupled EEG. So phase-coupling means that if you have uh, things at two different frequencies, two or more, that they kind of synchronize. So, for example, if you have gamma waves at, say, uh, 40 hertz or, or 35 hertz and a theta wave at 7, uh, you'll get, like, uh, five gammas in one theta wave. And they, and they, they ride along like that. And so they're little, little packets. Uh, and these packets have been suggested to, since they, they take about uh, a few hundred, milli, few hundred milliseconds, that, um, that they are uh, percepts or perceptions. In fact, uh, Christoph Koch, with whom I, I generally disagree, uh, said uh, many years ago that these were, were uh, packets of, of perception. And I think it was uh, Lissiart and uh, um, somebody else, I'll think of in a second, Who's, you know, uh, working memory, had, you, you remember se seven plus or two uh, things in one, uh, in, in one thought that these seven ways might correlate with the, uh, in one, might correlate with that. I don't know if that's true, but, but, uh, but what's, but what gets interesting and a little bit complicated is that uh, George Mashur's group at the University of Michigan has shown that phase coupling is actually increased under anesthesia. So what that means, I think, is that the phase coupling is the cognitive autopilot mode. We need that for normal cognition. But if consciousness is going to override that, then it takes it away from the, uh, from, the, from the phase coupling. So there's deviation from phase coupling, just like there's deviation from uh, Hodgkin-Huxley behavior in pyramidal neurons. So I'm coming to this view that there's this kind of computer-like system going on and then consciousness at the level of membranes and synapses uh, that gets altered or modulated or supervened upon by consciousness, which is coming from inside the neurons uh, due to quantum effects in the microtubules. So that's, that's where we're going with that. We hope to be able to um, use the organoids as a test system and find out uh, using uh, identifying putative neural correlates of consciousness and then uh, seeing how, how they're affected by anesthetics and also psychedelics and some other uh, per perturbations, and uh, and then uh, view these results in the context of different theories of consciousness. Basically, ours is the only one that considers uh, microtubules or, or uh, things going on inside neurons as relevant. So, uh, and on all the others are kind of lumped, and so uh, we should be able to tell whether. Microtubules are necessary for consciousness or not in this experiment. And uh, that wouldn't prove work or war because we're not testing quantum effects. We're doing that in the other experiments. Um, but it would, it would say that mic microtubules are necessary or unnecessary for consciousness. Now, I know there's been quite a resurgence of 
research on psychedelics in recent years uh, and some unusual findings, as I recall, that uh, during the height of psychedelic activity, the brain seems to be quiet, which is the opposite of what people had expected. Have you looked into that? Is it relevant to your own work? Absolutely. In fact, uh, when uh, Robin Carhart Harris first came out with this in 2012, he presented it at Tucson, uh, at the Tucson conference. And uh, what I said was, so basically, uh, they gave these people, uh, volunteers, uh, sitting in an MRI scanner with an IV, and they gave them intravenous psilocybin, psilocin, the active ingredient in, in magic mushrooms. And uh, they just saw what happened to the brain. They also did the EEG in, in separate experiments. And uh, the, uh, they found out later, they, they questioned them, and sure enough, in the scanner, after getting the IV psilocybin, they were tripping. They were having you know, enhanced perceptions, uh, the usual things that go along with, with psychedelic, uh, increased density, uh, information capacity, uh, deep interconnections, and that sort of thing. And they kind of expected that the brain in the MRI would light up like a pinball machine. But what they found was just the opposite. It was cold and dark, like they were unconscious. And uh, what my explanation was that in that situation, consciousness is occurring at a deeper level in the quantum realm, in the microtubules. And in fact, the, the psychedelics all had these aromatic rings, like I was talking about benzene-like or indole-like rings that, that kick in this, this electron resonance energy and promote consciousness or enhance it. But um, and the energy in, in the brain is is needed for uh, membrane effects and synaptic effects to maintain the, the membrane uh, polarization states. So if you're sitting in an MRI scanner tripping, uh, you don't really need your cognition. Uh, you wouldn't want that person to drive you home, for example. Uh, their cognition might be out of whack. In fact, is out of whack. And what that experiment shows is that there's no energy needed for cognition because they're not doing any cognition. They're just conscious. They're purely conscious. And that's a quantum effect, which doesn't need much energy. And I presume doesn't show up in the MRI then. Right. Because MRI is basically metabolism. It's energy consumption. What it really measures is blood flow and uh, the bold signal, blood oxygen level of dependence. And, uh, and what happens in, in an area that, that is active uh, right after it happens, there's an increase in blood flow. That's another interesting fact, that the blood flow increase happens just afterwards. And some people think it's to cool the system, to, to get rid of excess heat. But it's it's a function of metabolism. The more energy you're, you're burning, you need, the more uh, blood blood flow you need. So it's a measure of metabolism. And, and consciousness, and uh, I, I don't think many people would agree with this, but the dev evidence actually shows that consciousness doesn't require very much energy. It's a low energy effect. Uh, which could have, which could explain a lot of other uh, things like near-death experience and that sort of thing. But uh, if your membranes aren't active and you're not, you don't need them for cognition. You don't need a whole lot of energy. You know, many years ago, a half century ago, really, when I began thinking about the brain and consciousness, I had this model that the brain functioned both as a digital computer, the neural spikes, and as an analog computer, the chemical transmissions across the synapses. And one thing I don't recall ever having discussed with you is the synaptic part of it, the, the chemical 
uh, communication across synapses. Is is that important at all in your theory? I I think uh, you know spikes, axonal firings in general, and synaptic transmission, which is at the end of them, are kind of overrated in terms of uh, uh, at least for consciousness. And I think consciousness is actually once the spike is triggered, consciousness has already happened. So you have the dendrites and the soma that receiving all these inputs, they integrate to this threshold, and then there's modification of threshold or modification of triggering the spikes. And that, I think, is happening in the microtubules inside the, the dendrites and soma. And uh, when threshold is reached, you trigger the spike, and the spike is more like a messenger, messenger boy, uh, not to be demeaning, to take the signal to the next synapse. And then the release of neurotransmitter is probabilistic. So there's some other effect there which determines whether, whether there's a vesicle release. But the, the microtubules and the dendrites and soma are particularly well suited for interference and consciousness because they're, they're uniquely arrayed, the microtubules are uniquely arrayed in, in uh, dendrites and soma compared to uh, axons or all other cells in biology. Uh, in most cells, uh, except for neurons, uh, the microtubules are kind of like spokes of a wheel uh, coming out from the center of the cell, uh, from the centriole, the centrosome, uh, which are these barrels made of microtubules next to the nucleus, and then the, the microtubules fan out in all directions, and they're unipolar. There's a, a plus end and a minus end, and they're all aligned in the same direction, and they're continuous. Uh, and structurally supportive, therefore the cytoskeleton. But in dendrite, and that's how they are in neurons, they all go together parallel continuously. But in dendrites and soma, uh, the cell body, uh, they are interrupted. They're short and of mixed polarity. So you have one going this way and one going that way, one other way, other way. And there are these networks of mixed polarity, uh, and they're broken. So they're interrupted. So obviously they're not there for structural support for cytoskeletal support uh like your bone you wouldn't break your bones uh for structural support so why are they like this and and it, it could be and we think that it's because uh it leads to interference because if you have one going this way and one going that way they're 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 both in the same uh, voltage field from the membrane and they're going to have slightly different energies and that's going to mean their oscillations are slightly slightly different so when they vibrate together you're going to have a slight difference to give rise to beat frequency and that's the interference and that will uh so if you have uh, these beats occurring in say terahertz gigahertz or megahertz you're going to get much slower beat frequencies which give rise to the eeg and eeg even though we've been using it for 100 years or so we still don't understand what it means and its significance nor its origin. So Roger Penrose and I proposed in our 2014 paper that EEG was actually due to beat frequencies of microtubules uh, inside neurons, inside dendrites particularly, dendrites and soma. And uh, uh, subsequent to that, um, uh, a researcher in Argentina, Horacio Contiello, who had been at Harvard before that, who studies microtubules, found that microtubules have just microtubules by themselves without cells have electrical oscillations in the gamma EEG frequency range, like 40 hertz, up to 100 hertz. They have the, these elect coherent electrical oscillations. So, um, again, we're, uh, we're kind of uh, uh, radical uh, in our thinking, but we propose that EEG comes from uh, uh, a microtubule interference at a deeper level inside. And, uh, you know, if you look at, you know, the authorities on EEG, uh, Busaki and others, 
Uh, basically, their explanations are that alpha rhythm comes from this network and, and uh, delta and theta come from some other pacemaker. And, and there's a different explanation for every frequency band. And gamma, they still don't understand. We think it's all part of one system coming from the collective oscillations of microtubules and many neurons that give, give rise to it. Of course, uh, the pyramidal neurons, which have these giant uh, uh, pyramid shape or cone shape cell bodies with uh, geometric arrays of these mixed, uh, mixed polarity microtubules, uh, are, are the are the largest geometric arrays, and they give rise to EEG because their apical dendrites go to the surface. So when you measure EEG at the surface, you're actually measuring um, uh, the apical activity in the apical dendrites of pyramidal cells, pyramidal neurons. Yeah, but there's also the the whole chemical process that takes place, the development of a range of neurotransmitters and the impact of those neurotransmitters uh, as they emerge from the vesicles and reach the membrane of the adjacent synapse uh, and how all of that chemistry still seems to be a, an important part of uh if it's not consciousness per se, it must be an important part of information processing. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, and you know, as I, there's still a, a huge amount of uh, uh, question about just cognition, behavior, uh, even without consciousness. You know, there still be a, a tremendous uh, uh, amount of things to explain. And uh, now the, the neurotransmitters, um, many of them, uh, serotonin, uh, for example, uh, has uh, uh, dopamine, which causes pleasure. Uh, ple the pleasure molecule and the mood molecule have these pi resonance ar ar aromatic groups. So they come into the cell and they could uh, jump on uh, uh, jump on board the, the microtubule uh, quantum stuff and actually promote quantum states, just like uh, psychedelics do. Now, psychedelics actually can uh, well LSD, for example, and most of them bind to the 5-HT. 2A receptors uh, on the pyramidal cells, um, but these are metabotrophic receptors. So that means that when they're activated at the, at the cell surface in the membrane, they they have influences and activities going inside the neuron uh, into the microtubules. So they could at least indirectly affect the microtubules by binding at at the membrane receptors. And you'd need only a, very, a small amount uh, to uh, affect the uh, the quantum vibrations in the microtubules. I said before that uh, that the anesthetics dampen or, or get rid of these vibrations, and the hypothesis would be that uh, psychedelics would increase the frequency and push it into a more a higher vibrational state, and that would correlate with the psychedelic state. That would be a very interesting follow-up experiment to the one you're currently engaged in. Yeah, we hope to do that in the uh, both in the in the Templeton experiments where we're looking at the uh, superposition at, at, at Princeton in. in uh, uh, Skoll's lab, and also in, in Allison's uh, 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 cerebral organoids. Yeah, we hope to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, Stuart Hameroff, this has been a very stimulating conversation. Uh, it'll take me probably a long time to follow up on all of the various leads that you've mentioned, uh, but I have to applaud the work that you've been doing consistently decade after decade, building uh, what is clearly the most sophisticated model of consciousness that we now have and your willingness to put it all on the line with an experiment that could falsify it uh, and we'll have the results sometime in the next 12 months, I presume. Yes, that's right. And 
I mean, but why not? You got to do it. I mean, if you're going to call yourself a scientist, you got to be willing to risk it. So I also want to just uh, um, uh, shout out to my uh, collaborator and good friend, Sir Roger Penrose, whom, as you know, won the Nobel Prize recently, and uh, not for consciousness, but for black holes. I kind of think Roger deserves maybe a few more for uh, his theory of the universe and objective reduction and maybe even consciousness, but we'll have to see. You know, one other thing, Stuart, before uh, we leave, I know you just had your COVID vaccine uh, in the last couple hours. And uh, since it's a current topic, I think people are very interested in what is this vaccine all about? Uh, can you report anything on about that? This is my uh, my booster shot. I'm in healthcare, so and old, so I got I got to the head of the line, and uh, I had my first one about three weeks ago, and the second one just now. And the, everybody says the second one kind of kicks your butt, and I did feel a little bit queasy, but uh, I'm feeling better now. So, so we'll see. But uh, I, I've been working on an idea with with uh, Jack Jasinski uh, 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 that COVID the, the virus actually kind of takes over the cell and gets it to do its own bidding. And we think it might be co-opting the microtubule system. And we think it might actually have something to do with, with uh, inter interrupting with the centriole, which is kind of the brain of the, of the microtubule system in each one. But um, it's just a, a hunch at this point, but we're looking at it. I imagine, like most other medical professionals, you recommend that people get that vaccine as soon as they can. Absolutely. Absolutely. I work uh, in anesthesia, and we have to... Uh, you know, we screen all our patients. We're doing uh, just elective. Uh, uh, we're doing very few elective cases and just emergency cases, but it's a big problem. Uh, and yeah, get a vaccine for sure. Stuart Hammeroff, thank you once again so much for being with me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Great seeing you. Keep up the great work. See you soon, I hope. I hope so. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.